From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Today, millionaire teacher Andrew Hallam discusses his new book, Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health, and Wealth, and the book hits bookshelves and becomes available online today. So be sure to go pick it up. It is really good. It's another must read. You know his first book was good, The Millionaire Teacher. This one is also amazing. For this interview, Andrew is actually in Panama City and I interview him over the internet. And the conversation starts with him showing me epic views from his uh, laptop of the canal. And uh, that's where the conversation begins. And so, you know what? Why don't we just go to that conversation right now? This is Andrew Hallam talking about his new book, Balance, how to invest and spend for happiness, health, and wealth. Yeah, do you want to have a look at Panama City? I'll show you Panama City. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, where are you? You're in Panama City right now? Dude, I'm in Panama City, man. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Let's see it. Panama City is so cool. Wow. If I can, I'm going to get out here and actually then show you. Move out. You can have a look. So we're we're really close to the ocean. So we have this amazing view of kind of an overcast day today, but but you can oh see. Oh my goodness! So there's a city in the ocean. Okay, to so all the people who can't see what I'm looking at right now, Andrew's holding up his laptop behind, uh, over his shoulder, showing me the view from his balcony, and it is this incredible, incredible skyline, two, giant buildings, beautiful glassy water, beachside, photo. Uh, what do you call them? Postcard-esque scene. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Three, almost three, complete 180 view. And it's just stunning. And he's on the 30th floor. Uh, that is absolutely spectacular. Andrew travels all around the world and always uh, talks about how much fun he's having while I'm sitting in a cold, dank office. And uh, <laughs> it's been great to vicariously live through his travels for the last five years. I don't know if you can see the boats in the distance, but that that's the opening of the Panama Canal. So you have the ships that are waiting. So they all they'll all wait to come into the canal. So that that's basically what you're seeing there. If you see these little uh, might look like dots from your perspective, but those are the ships going into the canal. What is that circular looks like driveway there? Oh, oh, that's awesome. So that is uh, it's like a bypass. It's basically a highway. It's a bridge. Yeah? So it goes over the water. And what it does is it bypasses the old town. And so there's the old town, which is um, like old Panama City. And to drive through that would take forever because of this congestion. So they built a bridge around it. And every day from 4 a.m. till 8 a.m., they close off one lane on either side. And it's open just for cyclists. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. I go there... I go there most mornings. Yeah, and I and I ride my bike along there, so it's super cool. No, that's awesome. Oh my gosh, you're in Panama City. So, what are you guys doing down there? We're escaping winter because we hate the winter, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we're just chasing the sun. So we're gonna stay down here until April or May. It will be in Panama City itself until I guess probably for about two more months, and then we'll go up into the mountains. And the mountains are cooler in terms of temperature. And there are actually a lot of people that retired up in some of those regions that are a little bit cooler, like Boquete is one. 
So there are a lot of Americans that retire there because it's lower cost of living, but the weather is the weather's phenomenal all year round. So it's not too hot and doesn't get too cold. And I like it because it's right at the base of a volcano. And so I love to, uh, I bought a, a road bike when I was here. So I'll be able to ride my bike up the side of this thing. Um, it's just this fabulous road, really nice surface, uh, no traffic at all. And there's a whole series of different routes that you can do that just go straight uphill. For me, I love going uphill. Uphill's awesome. Uphill, love it, love it. And then turn the bike around. I actually came down in April, came down from, and I think I was telling you this, I might've even shown you like a screenshot of this, but I've got a GPS on the bike and, and I came down Volcambaru at over 60 miles an hour on the bike, which was just awesome. <laughs> this guy. 60 mile an hour. That's insane. Yeah. You look down at those little skinny tires and, and, and do wonder a little bit when, when I think about what a dog running out onto the road could do to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, yeah, I don't get, you know, I get a little smarter as I get older, but not, <laughs> but not much, not much. Maybe, maybe that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. Well, you've lived, lived quite an interesting life. It, yeah. We get to live once and, yep. And I don't think we necessarily need to make life exotic in terms of our actual locations. But one thing that I've always wanted to focus on was life satisfaction. And I, and I talked about that a lot in the, in the book balance. And it was something that I always wanted to figure out for me, like, what is it that I could do that gives me, you know, the best life satisfaction buck. And and that's going to be, that's going to be different for everybody. But once I started to read more research on like what is it that makes us happy? What is it that mm-hmm. makes humans fulfilled? I started realizing that, you know, as I went from this personal finance writer who was writing about money, I'd recognize that, you know, my real interest wasn't in money itself. It was in money as a component of your overall life and overall life satisfaction. Like if you ask why we do anything, like anything, ask why we do anything. Why does someone run a marathon? Why does someone want to get a degree? Why does someone want to buy a new car? If you ask them that question, their answer will always eventually come down to like, I think it'll make me happy or safe or secure. So it always boils down to like life satisfaction. However, the thing I find so interesting is, and when I was writing and researching for the book Balance, is that very few of us really know what will make us happy. So we often do things, um, purchase things that we think will augment our levels of life satisfaction, and they actually don't. So from a financial perspective, uh, this can be kind of crazy because we'll often spend money on stuff that doesn't enhance our life satisfaction, sometimes even going into debt to do it, and debt does equal misery, you know, based on so many different studies. Debt, there's a strong correlation between debt and depression and debt and, and just basic low mm. moods. Uh, and then that's money that we can't use if we're spending a lot on material things. It's money we can't use for investing, investing for the future and or uh, spending on something that actually does enhance your life experience, such as an experience, like something that you would do with family or friends, money that you would spend to build an actual memory. Because memories are with us. You know, they, 
you know, they, as I mentioned in the book, when say 20 years from now, Jared, you get together with a group of friends around a campfire. You guys are not going to sit around talking about the stuff that you bought back in 2025. Mm-hmm. You're going to talk about the stuff that you did. And, and right. those stories are going to get <laughs> probably better every year. <laughs> yes. More embellished. <laughs> the older we are, the better we were, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's so great. I find that so interesting about your book as, as not as opposed to the millionaire teacher, but it does seem that there's a definitely a shift um, from just straight money talk to a more holistic approach to money in terms of life, happiness. And, and I feel like you've always been kind of creeping in that direction. Um, but here you went for it fully. I mean, there's chapters that aren't directly talking about money, talking about, you know, for instance, happy planet, happy people. Um, there's a lot of, it's a lot more holistic, I would call it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do think that, you know, when we get back to that question uh, on of life satisfaction or on life satisfaction, I believe it doesn't really make sense to have a book that's just about the acquisition of money. Like right. we have to ask that question, well, what's the purpose of it? Mm-hmm. And and how are we going to use it? And, and if each and every one of us just really wants to live the best lives that we can, how can we allocate both our time and our resources to do that? So with the book Balance, that was what my, my intention was. And it was actually kind of cool with, with Asset Builder um, because I remember like when I first started writing for Asset Builder, which would have been 2000 and beginning of 2012. So coming into the 10th year here. And wow. so, uh, Kenan and Scott Gross, they were you know, founding members. It's Kenan, Kenan's company, but Scott was one of the, one of the early members as well. And Scott Burns. Yeah. Scott Burns. Yeah. And yeah. Scott said to me, um, you know, would you be interested in writing for us? And so just bringing in a different voice. So Scott Burns was writing and then I started writing for asset builder as well. And, and it was about money. I was writing about money. And then once in a while, I would slip something in that was just totally non-financially related. Mm-hmm. And, and I wondered like, how like, Kenan is the CEO of the firm. And I wondered how he would respond to those, those stories. And he told me later, uh, keep, keep those coming. Like, people yep. like that stuff. It's, and I was thrilled because then I could dig more into that and every once in a while write something that was completely non-finance related but more life-related. But the, the two things, they're combined. I mean, when we, look mm-hmm. at, when we look at success, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book, In Balance, is that we, we define success often one way, and it's a messed up way. Like, we define success as, as money, like, or career. So we'll say, oh, you know, that woman over there, she's, she's really successful because she owns her own law firm and she drives a Maserati and she has like a big house on the hill. Therefore, she is a success. And, and I would always question that because to me, that means she has money or it means she has a career. But how do we define what it is to be successful? If our prime directive, when you get down to ask people why they do anything at all, if a prime directive is to live the best life that we can, then isn't that the definition of success, somebody trying to live their best life. So what I did was in balance, I identified success as something like a four-legged table. So one leg was the, the leg of money. So obviously you had to have enough money. You have to not have enough money to live, to have shelter, 
so that you can you know, stay safe and eat good foods. Uh, the second leg dealt with relationships. The relationships have to be good to be considered a success. For you to be whole and feel happy, your relationships have to be good. That's really important. The third is health. You have to do what you can. And everybody's been dealt a different hand. Think of it as a, a deck of cards. Everyone gets dealt a different hand. And things mm-hmm. come through that you know that we can that we can't always control but the idea that we try to control what we can control with our health is really important because health is pivotal pivotal for uh, for for life satisfaction and then the fourth that I identified was a sense of purpose like something that gets you up in the morning something that you are able to do or identify with that you actually do enjoy so this was a this is something that I was I felt really really strongly about and I wanted to put together because if we look at someone who's conventionally successful but they have horrible relationships with other people they're not going to be happy. Mm-hmm. So if they're not going to be happy based on a definition of success which is holistic life satisfaction they're not successful. Right and in that in that uh, table metaphor you mentioned that if one of the legs are broken the table can't stand. So if if that's true, like uh, on that logic, if you're investing poorly, let's say, do you think that's something that can potentially like ruin your life or not allow the table to stand, so to speak? It can add a lot of stress for, for several reasons. Like if you're investing poorly and, and a lot of people that speculate invest poorly, mm-hmm. it's just if you're speculating on something, you're following the market, you're chasing things. Here's what we know. We know that to maximize our long-term profits, the probabilities of our long-term profits are such that if we build a diversified portfolio of index funds or ETFs on an equal risk-adjusted basis, we will beat 90% of professional traders during our lifetime. And you'll, you'll get people, obviously, will say, well, I want to be in that top 10%. <laughs> and so they might chase a guru who ends up beating the market for a time period. But of course, the same person that beats the market during one time period ends up typically underperforming during the next. So there's this reversion to the mean. I think the idea that you're trying to constantly be in this top 10%, putting effort into that, chasing things, looking at the economy, first of all, the likelihood of you actually doing it is almost zero because we have the mathematical probability and then we have the behavioral probability, right? So as speculators, we freak out. No, people do. They freak out. So behaviorally, can you do it? So mathematically, we know you'll beat 90% of professional traders by just simple risk-adjusted portfolio of index funds. But the likelihood of you being in that top percent, 10% over a lengthy period of time, especially when you bring in the behavioral quadrant, the greed and the fear associated with it, is almost zero. Like I'd actually love to see the statistics on this, but it'd be almost zero. Mm-hmm. So you know, when we when we come when it comes down to that, a lot of our life satisfaction hinges on expectations, mm-hmm. and so and and what we're doing with our time. When we spend, and for me, I'll speak about this. I think personally, from a personal perspective, and I and I truly believe that this would be uh, very prevalent among most people. We don't want to be chasing the stock market. We don't want to be thinking about the stock market. We got better things mm-hmm. to do. It's time consuming. Mm-hmm. We have a life to lead. And so to spend gobs of time and effort and stress on what essentially is a bad investment policy is is a waste of our life. And that that's how I see it. 
So one of my questions is going to be, why should we be buying index funds? Would you say that that answers that question? Or is there more you'd like to add to that? I think that answers that question because we know for sure that we're going to be within, and this isn't just anecdotal, it isn't just me me spouting this off. We are going to be in the 90th percentile of all investors over our lifetime without putting any time into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's beautiful because then you can spend time with your family. You know, instead of researching stocks or researching the economy, uh, you have a high likelihood, very high likelihood of beating just about everybody that does do that, spends time on that. But you can spend time with your son or your daughter or your wife or your husband. You can spend time enjoying something, uh, taking guitar lessons or cooking lessons. And just the, the idea, too, that when we aren't thinking about it all the time, research suggests that when we don't think about money all the time, mm-hmm. we, we are actually happier and, yep. and more generous. And generosity is strongly linked on a cellular level to human longevity, mm-hmm. happiness. And so to me, it just doesn't make sense financially, spiritually, emotionally, for us to speculate and do anything other than diversified portfolio of ETFs or indexes. Now, Andrew, earlier we talked about how memories are, creating memories is a far better use of time and resources than, for instance, buying a brand new car yet. And, and we've heard that a million times, right? Yet there's still so many people who fall into that trap. If In your analysis, do you, would you blame that on um, our inherent nature as humans? Or do you think it's more like societal, where you're getting pressured to keep up with the Joneses? I think it's both. I think that marketing has become very slick. So in the 1950s, when marketers figured out, you know what, people are pretty prudent. It was after the, the Great Depression, you know, a couple of couple of decades after that, people weren't buying. And so marketers were trying to figure out how they can get into the human brain. How can we, how can we somehow make people feel like they need more things? And so they literally got into like, studying human psychology and creating this sort of advertise, these advertisements suggesting that you will be happier if you buy this stuff. And Back to the human nature component, once people own things that perhaps we don't have, FOMO sets in. You see that person, your neighbor has a brand new car, you don't have a brand new car, they're proud of their brand new car, so not only is it kind of being rubbed in your face as they drive by, but they'll be like, first day it comes in the driveway, come check out my new car. Uh, And of course, the irony of all that is, you have Daniel Kahneman does this great job. He's the author of Thinking Fast and Slow. He's a Nobel Prize winner in behavioral economics. And he identified happiness as one of two categories. It falls under one of two classifications. One that he called reflective happiness. The second that he called experiential happiness. So reflective happiness is almost like a justification. So if you ask that new car owner, are you happier with this brand new whatever it is compared to your old 10-year-old uh, Honda Civic? That person would say, well, yeah, definitely. So that's reflective happiness. It's actually what they believe. But as Daniel Kahneman so aptly suggests, we actually don't know what makes us happy. Like We will do things like purchase a car believing that actually will increase our life satisfaction 
where research suggests it doesn't. So the second is the true level of happiness called the experiential happiness. So if you could wire up somebody you know, you have a friend and that friend owns a, uh, a brand new BMW and, and you wire them up such that you, know, you, can, you can check all their heart rate, you can check their level of blood pressure. You actually had a way of measuring their inner contentment and happiness while driving. Compared to you, somebody wires you up to the same stuff. When they first get that car, Jared, they're super excited. Like the heart rate's higher. They're super jazzed about it. They're thinking about it a lot. But it only takes a couple of weeks before something kicks in called hedonic adaptability, which means that we get used to whatever it is that we own very, very quickly to the point where that brand new car, the expensive car, just becomes another tool that gets you from point A to point B. And the reason is, you know, that person, when they're driving to work, they're not thinking at that point about the smooth acceleration, the braking, the tight handling. They're thinking about whether they're going to be late. They might be upset because somebody cut them off. They're thinking about their child's soccer game afterwards. And so the idea that we would pursue a material acquisition, an unneeded material acquisition, or spend too much on a material acquisition uh, is, actually, is actually kind of backward, but natural. Like it's natural for us to think that. But we have to try to figure out what does the science say behind that? And if you can hold off on the FOMO, if you can figure out and at least in your mind say, they're not happier than me. And if I get that car, I'm not going to be happier than I am right now. It'll just be like a sugar rush. And I'm going to have a debt and or that's money that I can't invest for my future or I can't spend on a vacation with my family. Once you sort of reframe these things, I think it allows you to prioritize where your spending goes to try your best to enhance your life satisfaction. Yeah, because, you know, people say it always seems like, and this is the problem with social media, it always seems so much more amazing than it is. That vacation that you see your friends go on, that car that they have, just like you said, but to them, it's actually not that big a deal. But to you, it seems like it would be life, life transforming, you know, and that's, that's sort of the irony of, of all of it. Yeah, so, so, so true. So what do you mean by, uh, there was a quote I found interesting in your book. What do you mean by income does not determine your wealth? Income doesn't determine your wealth because if you earn a million dollars a year and you spend a million dollars a year, you're not wealthy. And <laughs> based on my definition, a wealthy person has to be able to, and this is my definition of it. Um, a wealthy person has to be able to, if they choose to, never work again and live on passive income that is at least twice the median household income of that, the jurisdiction that they end up living in. And so it's not necessarily how much you make that counts. It's, it's what you do with what you make. I met a guy who earned... And I don't know if I told you this, but I met a guy who earned $8 million a year. Mm -hmm. And he'd been earning this for a long time, and he lived in Dubai. And he's uh, not an American, so he didn't pay uh, income tax on that. So Americans have to pay income tax on their worldwide income. Uh, there are only, only two residents have to do that, residents of the United States and residents of Eritrea, it's a little country in Africa. But for the rest of the people, if you're Canadian or you're Spanish or British, if you move to a place where they don't charge income tax, like Kuwait or Dubai, 
you don't pay an income tax. So you don't pay income tax in that country and you don't pay any income tax to your home country. And so anyway, this guy's making $8 million a year working for this company. He's a director of this company, obviously a very, very profitable business. And he asked me to come and speak to his employees. And we sat down and we actually ended up having like a dinner. And, I'm, and, and he said to me, look, I want to explain why I'm so keen to have you speak to my employees. I don't want them to make the same mistakes that I made. And I'm looking at this guy and we had these great talks beforehand and I'm hearing about his life and I'm thinking, like, okay, so what, what mistakes did you make? And, and he said, well, you know, I spend too much. And I decided to just get right to the heart of the whole thing. I mean, he was paying me to speak to his employees. So I just started to ask him just some super blunt questions that I wouldn't normally socially do. Um, I might mm-hmm. work my way into that after a little, little while getting to know a person. But, but I asked him, like, I asked how much money he made. And then I asked him how long he could live on his actual savings if he lost his job. And he said, just a handful of months. So, yeah, so, so he, earned wow. eight, he earned eight million a year tax-free and I was wealthier than him, not just because I could live longer and sustain my lifestyle without a paycheck, but literally, and I'm not making this up, literally, Jared, my net worth was higher than his. So it's not necessarily how much you're spending, it's what you're doing with the money that you have. Obviously, higher incomes can help, for sure, but what you do with it in terms of how you're spending it and how you're investing it are so, so important. So the Millionaire Teacher came out about almost 10 years ago. Um, Is there anything in your financial philosophy or even your life philosophy that has changed over the last decade? Mm, yeah, that's a good, that's a really good question. I think that in 2014, that's when my wife and I decided we would take a year off from our, our Singapore-based teaching jobs. So I taught high school English and high school personal finance, and my wife taught high school Spanish at a large international school. We had, um, a lot of people would think that we, we taught Singaporean kids, but, but we didn't. Uh, the school was actually mostly Americans. I think 60% were 65% U.S. passport holders. And there were about 54 different nationalities represented in the student body. And even at that time, of course, I'm writing about money. You know, I'd written Millionaire Teacher. I was giving financial talks at different schools and different businesses. And, and I would talk to people about at least give people guidance in terms of how much money they needed to retire. So when you ask that question, Jared, about an actual shift, here's the shift that occurred during my year off. I would meet people and they would be people in the States or Canada or Bali or Thailand who blew my whole perception to pieces in terms of how much money people really need. Like whenever you see in a magazine article suggesting that, you know, online article suggesting the, you know, can you survive on X amount a year or uh, X amount of portfolio? Can you retire on $2 million or can you retire on a million dollars today? Toss that all out because your personal finance and, and the financial advisors that you're working with, uh, financial advisors with asset builder, they know this, that personal finance is so personal. Like it's so dependent on what kind of life are, is the person choosing to lead? So I would meet these people. Uh, I remember a, like an American couple 
that would spend months in Bali every winter. And, and as a result of that, they were hardly spending anything because Bali is super cheap. And so they needed so much less money to retire than most American families. They lived at a, they had a home in the States that was paid for. So, you know, they just, they'd hunker down a little bit early on, paid off their mortgage. It wasn't an extravagant home, but it was a paid for home. So they ended up having shelter in the U.S. It was basically free. Then they'd come to places like Bali or Thailand in the winter. They would end up spending so much less, but living this super cool, rich life with all these really neat experiences. And they blew my mind when we got into asking questions about money. And this is what global travelers often do too. They're like, so how are you doing this? Like, how are you making this happen financially? And that question always comes up. Like, it's not me digging in and asking it. They all ask each other, like if someone has kind of an unconventional life. And it led me to not only see that these people with unconventional lives would often need a lot less, but a lot of the people that I would meet in places in Canada and the United States, just based on what their priorities are, would end up retiring on significantly less than I thought they would need. Another thing that I also found is that the idea of, and I think this takes a lot of stress off people, a lot of people think they need X amount of money to retire. And after researching retirement and longevity studies, my advice to people now is forget that completely, never fully retire. So that's my advice to people, never fully retire. So when you don't fully retire, so let's say whatever, you're an accountant or you're a, a doctor or a teacher or a mechanic or whatever. When you decide you don't want to do that full time anymore, you can either dial it back if you still like it, dial it back to something part-time and keep doing that for as long as you can or pick up some kind of passion project that brings in a little bit of money for you, something that you enjoy doing, but keep doing it. Forget about like you know, the, the advertisements of retirement. There's this couple on the golf course and you know person on the, the horse and laying there on the beach. That stuff gets old. It gets old fast. We need, we need balance and you need to be able to be working a little bit to enjoy leisure time. You won't enjoy leisure time if that's all you have. Most people won't. And the research on it, what I found, Jared, was just so compelling in that if we retire early, odds are we actually die earlier. So here we are as a society, right? We love this concept of retiring. We want to retire early and then play golf or do whatever. Um, but the evidence on this is so robust. It's that generally, and of course, you know, there are going to be people who retire at 40 that live to 100. So I'm not saying that this is for everybody, but on aggregate, the research is robust. You retire early on aggregate, those people die earlier. Isn't that interesting? Um, so let's say that a couple has a nest egg of, let's say 50 grand, they're 65 they want to retire abroad. They come to Andrew Hallam. They say, hey, what's a country that you would recommend us try to make a go at retirement? What, what's a country that you would pick? So they have $50,000 and they'll have social security. It, yes. really, it really depends on what they, what they want. 
out of a lifestyle, if they want to be around a lot of other Americans, I do recommend a place like Ajijic, Mexico, which is along Lake Chapala. It's the largest American expatriate retirement community in the world. So it's basically, it's like a cluster of these villages. They're all along the lake and it's just filled with Americans and, uh, and Canadian snowbirds. I mean, in that, you know, there, there are some pluses to that on a, from a social perspective because you have all of these, these, these people who are, one, they're adventurous, like anyone that does that is like, you know, they're open to new things for the most part. I find that those people tend to be curious. Uh, they're both interesting and interested. And so it's easy to build good connections. Connections are everything. You know, when you look at mm -hmm. the Harvard study of adult development, and we look at, like, it's an eight-decade-long study. Like, what is it that makes people happy? Relationships are huge. Yep. So the idea that you could be there, it's a short flight from the United States, and that you would have a built-in community of interested and interesting people right away who would accept you with open arms, and they do. Like, when we, when we first went there, a friend said, like, you're going to have to start learning to say no to people because it's just this uber social kind of atmosphere, which is amazing. But, you know, at times it can actually be, be quite exhausting. But we had friends there who hadn't saved a penny, Jared. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't have anything except their social security payments. And so their social security combined, like for the two of them, was $33,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And they had gym memberships. They had a guy come and give them a massage every week. He'd come to their home with his collapsible table, set them up. They'd get massages. They lived in a, a cute, like, gated community with a, with a swimming pool. And they had this cute little rooftop area. We would go there, and sometimes they would host us, and we'd go up to, to the rooftop and look up at the mountains. I could talk about this topic forever. I'm just scratching the surface, Jared. Uh, when I start, oh, I know. About, when I start talking about Mexico, this is just one of many places that I would recommend. At the beginning of your book, um, you say this quote. Oh, wait, did I write it down? Let me see. Let me just open your book because I really like this quote. This book is dedicated to anyone who's brave enough to dance to the beat of their own drum. From an investment philosophy standpoint, would you say that you walk to the beat of your own drum? And does that require a degree of bravery? Great question. I would say that today, with so many people chasing assets that are rising in value, whether those assets really have any fundamental value or not, I would say that in many respects, I am an outlier. I am not chasing cryptocurrencies. I am not chasing Kathy Wood's ARK ETFs, ARK Innovation ETFs, or meme stocks. I'm just following a set course as I have continued to do for many, many years and as I will continue to do. So it's during times like this where FOMO sets in and speculation becomes the norm. So I would say following the set path that I'm doing has probably, I don't want to say it's made me an outlier, but the fact that I have no speculative component in my portfolio, none. Not a single individual stock, not a single bit of grip crypto, uh, and I have no interest in either of those things whatsoever. It probably does make me a little bit of an outlier. Yeah, following uh, following my own path. 
So who would you say that this book balance is for? Um, would you say that it's for everyone or is it geared towards pre-retirees, maybe people just starting out in their financial life, a 30-year-old like me? Who were who you thinking about when you wrote this book? I'd like to think of like a really broad audience with it because I brought in lessons for really young people starting out, people with children, raising kids, pieces about retiring. And I'm hoping that every piece of those or every bit of stories that I talk about with respect to each of those demographics is something that we can all somehow relate to. You can take a piece of that and bring it into your life, no matter what stage you're at. You know, when we talked about beating to your own drum, the importance of beating to your own drum for life satisfaction. So yeah, the book is dedicated to people who are brave enough to beat to their own drum. David Blanchfauer is an economics professor. And he did a study that was done in 132 different countries, whereby he looked at the life satisfaction curve. And so you, you and I have talked a little bit about this by email, because I've written about this before, that our life satisfaction hits a peak twice, generally in our early 20s, when we see the world as our oyster. We can do anything we set our minds to. That's when our confidence is really, really high. But then life satisfaction tends to dip. It tends to dip because obviously we start to get hit with responsibilities like, okay, I've got to pay off my student loan now. I've got to get a house. I've got to get a mortgage. But another really big component that drags us down emotionally is the FOMO factor, is the feeling like, are, am I measuring up to the goals too. Am I measuring up to the goals that I'd established for myself? Am I measuring up to my neighbors? Am I measuring up to people I went to school with? We become constantly become comparing ourselves, not only to others, but to our original expectations. And so mm-hmm. we care a lot about what other people think of us. And then we start to come into our 30s and 40s, and you actually get this upward trend of life satisfaction around the age of 50. And one of the reasons for that is people just basically get to a point where they start to say, you know what, I'm going to be me. And I don't really feel the need to be pressured by expectations of society or other people. It's like this level of calm security ends up enveloping us. And what I wrote about in the book is I said, these are just statistical norms. These are, this is what happens statistically in people in 132 different countries. doesn't mean every single individual ends up falling into this, but by and large, on aggregate, people do. But my lesson here for, for younger people is to say, to hell with this. You think like, think like that person who can think for themselves and not be affected by peer pressures. Think like that person now. If you're 30, embrace whatever it is that 50-year-old has where they decide they're going to be them. They're going to be who they are. They're not going to feel pressured by society or societal expectations. Try to take some really deep breaths, focus inwardly, and be the best person you can be today and embrace who you are with gratitude and say to heck with the peer pressure. If you have the bravery to do that, and it does take a degree of bravery, you're going to live a better life. Okay, so I actually did have one question that I was going to ask you after we stopped recording. 
but maybe I'll put it in here. So here's my, here's my equation. Let's see if you can tell me the answer to this. So let's say you have two jobs, job A, job B, and I want to work at, I'm deciding which one to go to, job A or job B. So job A, I would say, has a satisfaction rate of 50%, but the income's at 100% of what I wanted. Now job B is the exact inverse. It's a 100% of the satisfaction, but 50% of the income. If you were, if that's all the information you had, uh, which one would you choose, A or B? You're going to spend a lot of time working. And so when you work, your employer buys pieces of your life, actually purchases it. And so if you're working at a job that you don't enjoy and you actually have a choice to work somewhere else at a job that you do enjoy, and if you can enjoy that job plus put food on your table and have enough money, I would go with the position that actually fulfills you because you only live once. And like I said in the book, life is like a, a dark hourglass. It has sand in it and it gets tipped at birth and nobody knows how much sand they have left. So the idea that you might take a job that you hate that pays a lot so that maybe at some point in the future, you can retire earlier perhaps and be happy or buy more stuff today because your income is higher and be happy is a delusion. So once we can identify that factor of life satisfaction as it relates to material acquisitions and realize that there's, there's really no correlation, it takes a lot of stress, I think, off us financially and enables us to be in that position where we can choose the job that's fulfilling that we actually enjoy and not necessarily chase the paycheck. If that job though, Jared, if you're talking about a job and it pays you 15 grand a year, then I'd say, okay, it could be really fulfilling, but if you can't feed yourself and shelter yourself and put a little bit of money away for your future, regardless of how frugal you're going to be, um, then you're going to be looking at a different decision, right? Right. That's awesome. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. So where can people get balance and what, when does it come out? January 17th is the official release date. And so it's available on Amazon now. So it actually was available for pre-orders as early as November. And so Amazon.com or any other online retailers. And it'll be available in brick and mortar stores on January 17th as well. So Barnes and Nobles, it'll be available. Oh, my wife says 18th. It's going to be the 18th, not the 17th. It'll actually be available. But uh, essentially, that's when it's going to be delivered. So the kind of cool thing about it, now I didn't know this, but you pre-order it. And the idea is that, say you pre-order it now, the idea is that the book will actually show up in, in your mailbox or on your Kindle on the 18th. So you know, if you order it, you know, even though that's the official release date, that's actually the date that they try to plan to get it into your mailbox, which is kind of neat. Guys, everybody go get Balance by Andrew Hallam. You can also pick up Millionaire Teacher. That's still available on Amazon and everywhere. Kindle, right? Everywhere books are sold. Andrew, it is such a pleasure. Uh, hopefully it's not a year till the next time we talk or your next book's release, which I guess would be in 10 years. Super pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate it. And if anybody does want to pre-order the book, um, at andrewhelm.com at my website, if you pre-order it, you know, I send you a couple of, uh, of nice things. So a, little, a couple of little freebies there, freebies there as incentive. But I love chatting with you today, Jared. It was awesome. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this because as you can tell, um, 
yeah, I get pretty excited talking about life satisfaction studies because it's uh, it, it really jazzes me. So I think that's really uh, it's really the crux of why we're why we're here and why we're trying to live our best lives, isn't it? Absolutely, Andrew. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks again, Jared. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com.